Tonight I would, say, I would like to say a few things about um, something which I think has two sides to it. Now, one side is what is traditionally called right effort, and the other side is desire for enlightenment desire for liberation. So we'll try to explore a little bit this something which uh, on the one side appears as right energy, right effort, wise energy. and to some extent, discipline. And, and the other side appears as the flame of desire for enlightenment, for freedom, desire for the ultimate, for God, no matter the way we want to name it, since it doesn't seem to have names. What is called right effort, it's something which deepens one year after another. It's not something that either we have it or we don't have it. As a matter of fact, progress in the practice is very much progress in developing the art of right effort. So a right effort is the fruit of a lifetime of practice. And maybe that is just the beginning. A frequent metaphor is um, equates right effort with the strings of a musical instrument. So when the strings are too tight, or when the strings are too <coughs> loose, the instrument doesn't work properly. So the art of right effort is to learn the right way of, of uh, having the strings so that the sound, the sound of our practice can be the right one can be centered, grounded, instead of being off. Can be satisfying, can create deep satisfaction instead of further suffering. You know, tension, tense effort is further suffering. Insufficient effort is frustration. But if effort has to become a source of satisfaction, then it has to be right effort. And that is an art. It's part of wisdom. 
as many of you know, right effort is not at the beginning of the way, it's not at the beginning of the path, but it rests, so to speak, upon some understanding, some intention, some moral sensitivity. So it's not a, a, a raw dimension. It's something already sophisticated. It implies, it entails already some, some uh, work, some understanding, some development. Otherwise, we cannot think, we cannot conceive of uh, developing this fine art, which is right effort. And I think it, um, it is interesting to look from a, a close distance uh, at a few crucial qualities which uh, have to develop when right effort matures, or rather when effort matures into right effort. I'm thinking of patience, I'm thinking of readiness, and I'm thinking of tranquility or peacefulness. Um, patience. Patience um, in this context is already a piece of wisdom. Patience means that we keep practicing no matter what. Patience means that we don't um, over-dramatize the ups and downs, the um, inclination to practice or the inclination not to practice. Um, gently, we keep practicing. Gently, we keep bringing the attention back to the object. The breath, if that is our object or other object of our attention. Um, the patience we should develop through the inner work, the patience which is the core of right effort, is something very alive. There is not such thing as a frozen patience. That is just willpower, and uh, if it feels frozen, um, that means that uh, it can break down anytime because it's stiff, it's rigid. But patience is very alive, and so it's very resilient. It's very flexible. All this means wisdom, some wisdom, some degree of wisdom. But more specifically, we can see wisdom in this, in this point If we see that our mind is restless, I'm sure we are or familiar with this contemplation. Now, if we see 
that our mind is restless and we respond with impatience. Now, we are responding to fire with fire. We do not get out of prison. We stay in the same logic, in the same dimension. It's just another form of restlessness, impatience. So we, we, we turn around. But we think uh, we are, maybe we think we are opposing impatience, uh, restlessness through impatience. No, it's just the same thing. It's actually restlessness is blossoming. It's, it's you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, we, and we fool ourselves if we think that things are uh, in a different way. So we are responding to fire uh, with fire. Whereas if we respond with patience, then we are responding to fire with water. And that makes sense. And that is healing. That is kusala, which means good, helpful, sane, healthy. The other way, we're just worsening the symptoms. We are obeying what is called kilesas, we are obeying our aversion. And more than that, we are total prey to ignorance. Because we think that impatience is something different from restlessness. Now, that is the uh, obvious dictatorship of ignorance. We are totally obscured. Our understanding is gone. Readiness, I think it's, it's interesting. When I say readiness, I mean we are practicing, we are meditating, and then we remember mindfulness after getting lost for some time. If we develop some right effort, we are naturally ready as soon as we remember mindfulness to go into mindfulness. As soon as we remember attention, we are ready to jump into the attention, into awareness. Again, this is the healthy response. But we know that not always do we respond this way. We can uh, uh, spend time wondering how come? Have, have, was I distracted for such a long time? Um, and uh, we can spend time speculating. We can even spend time making a strong commitment and trying to find words to express this commitment, not to get distracted again. And meanwhile, we are postponing the practice. But we think that we are doing the right thing. Again, the avidya, ignorance, is at work. Readiness seems that you just, you know, as they say in Zen, uh, uh, the coat uh, is, is, is on, it, it fell on the ground. We pick up the coat. We do the work. 
we do the job. We, we go to the breath and we drop uh, everything else. Readiness is simplicity. And in the Western spiritual tradition, simplicity has been presented as a very important virtue. Simple means which is made of one thing only. And that reminds me of Kierkegaard when he says purity, purity is doing one thing only. So we do the job, we do the practice, we practice mindfulness, we remember mindfulness, we do mindfulness, period. Again, this is an aspect, this readiness, this promptness, this simplicity is an aspect of, of, of the maturing of right effort. And um, again, we don't respond uh, to fire with fire. We don't respond to distraction, adding further distractions, speculations about our distraction. I mean, a, a retreat can be a, a very complex history of, of, of chains of these events. Uh, there's a whole, a whole range of possibility. Tranquility, peacefulness. See, sometimes uh, one hears or reads a very nice expression, which is resting in awareness. which evidently means that awareness is restful. Otherwise, how could we rest in awareness? And I'm sure that all of us have some experience of this restful quality of awareness. For instance, no one ever has regretted having been mindful, having been attentive, having been aware. And if we regret it, we are not regretting mindfulness. We are regretting whatever we saw, whatever we thought, and whatever we realized through mindfulness, but we are not regretting mindfulness itself. We are regretting contents of our mind, of our senses, but not awareness and its mystery. Whenever it's kindled, there is rest. It, it, we might very well say that there is a magic quality to attention, to awareness. The magic quality which arises when we really manage to be a pure mirror. The magic quality of just being a mirror. When, when we uh, taste some of this, then it becomes easier literally to slide into awareness, to slide into mindfulness. You know, it's not only an issue of patience and an issue of promptness, of readiness, but it gets some 
peaceful quality. In other words, to be more specific, the maturing of right effort entails a more and more peaceful coming back to the breath, coming back to mindfulness. It's not only an issue of going back, it's how we go back. And this has to change. And, and, and one aspect of this change is that it becomes more and more peaceful. Okay, I was, my mind was out for 10 minutes, and ah, I peacefully go back to the breath. I peacefully go back to mindfulness. With a great relief and peace that we are back into what really counts. We had forgotten, and now we remember. And that brings peace. We'll, we'll come back to right effort. Um, but now, let's um, look a little bit at the other side I mentioned at the beginning. The other side being desire for enlightenment. Um, which has been also called our deepest desire. The desire for enlightenment, for instance, the way uh, it is explained in Mahayana Buddhism, it's called bodhicitta, the mind of enlightenment, the mind of awakening. Desire for enlightenment is desire that universal enlightenment can happen. In other words, desire for my enlightenment, whatever that my can mean, and desire for every living being's enlightenment. How can we conceive of, 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 of a fullest happiness if this happiness is not universal? Like, can we, can, can we be happy 100% if we know that, yes, we are happy, but someone else is not happy. It, always, uh, it will be always a shadow in, in, in this happiness. So the deepest desire is that everyone be happy. Otherwise, how can I be happy? In a sense, this sounds like a sublime selfishness. Try to be happy so that I can be happy. Otherwise, I cannot be happy if you are not happy. Tikhnat <laughs> Khan, um, as usual, puts it very beautifully. When a woman becomes pregnant, Something happens in her body, mind, and heart. The presence of the child in her transforms her life, and the new energy arises, which allows her to do things which she usually could not do. Now this woman, this woman smiles and trusts mankind and the world more. She becomes a source of joy and hope 
for many others. Even when she feels nauseous or when she doesn't feel well, a deep inner peace is awakened in the depths of her being, a profound source of satisfaction. We practitioners, too, need to become pregnant, pregnant with the desire for enlightenment. A seed which has been buried in us for many years under layers of suffering, pain and forgetfulness needs to be touched. And when it is touched, transformation begins. In Mahayana Buddhism, this seed is called bodhicitta, the mind of enlightenment. The moment we get in touch with this capacity, people will see joy, energy and hope in us. And everything we do and everything we say will manifest its presence. Um, I think that descriptions of uh, what we might call the fundamental desire are helpful and uh, they can have also some danger. I think they're helpful because um, they can help acknowledge, they can acknowledge, they can help recognize something maybe we've been occasionally visited by some uh, awesome and strong drive but which was quite vague at the same time now hearing these words like the ones that we just read by Thich Khan can help us recognize this precious ingredient of, of the spiritual path and so we we uh, we derive help and we can, in addition to recognizing, we can channel and uh, we can own more this ingredient. Maybe there is also some, some danger, like maybe we listen to these words and we think, well, frankly, I don't think I am pregnant. <laughs> but that is a misconception. I mean, think that unless we have this desire since the very beginning of our path, then uh, we lack some uh, basic instrument and so we can get discouraged. As a matter of fact, um, sometimes 
it's very beautiful to see, uh, I mean, people having right from the beginning a very strong form and very genuine, authentic form of this desire. But it's, I think, rather rare. What tends to happen is that this seed uncovers itself in time. It takes time. It's a gradual process. So um, I think it's uh, helpful to, it, it, it is necessary to clarify that how, how these processes work so that an, an, an undue discouragement doesn't take place. Another, another danger is that we can, out of some unconscious ambition, um, we can begin to fabricate a concept in our minds. In other words, this desire is is at it, it is at the stage at in an initial stage, but out of ambition we 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 want things to be different, and so we 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 um, construct a concept about um, uh, our desire for the ultimate. It is something that we do in order to convince ourselves to convince other people, and um, the thing is that this desire is very, very far from being a concept. It's, a, it's the other way around. In, um, in certain Buddhist schools, they use the metaphor of the perfume. They say there is the ultimate and there is the perfume of the ultimate. Now, when we start smelling this perfume, it is then that faith or desire for the ultimate arises. But perfume, smelling, smelling perfume is very, it's very physical. It seems to be something very, on the one hand, very ephemeral, you know, perfume. But smelling a perfume is something physical. And as a matter of fact, the more we smell this perfume, and the more concepts about the ultimate lose their interest in our eyes, the, 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 the more they, the concepts melt away, because it's rather physical. I think that the foundation for this desire to grow is some lessening of self-preoccupation, which usually clogs the, the, the screen of our mind. I remember uh, many years ago working with uh, Suzuki Roshi, and he, was, uh, he would frequently say things like 99% um, of our thoughts are self-centered thoughts. And uh, that, of course, is a barrier for this kind of, of uh, desire. One specific quality of this desire is that it is a very unusual desire because it brings unity, it brings peace. 
So it's very atypical because desire brings, usually separation brings conflict. If I desire something, maybe other people desire the same thing, so I fall into aversion for other people or I uh, fall into aversion against anything which opposes my getting that thing that I desire, you know, all the problems which are connected with desire. But this desire, this desire uh, is, as I said, very unusual because it doesn't bring separation, <laughs> fragmentation. It brings unification. A great contemplative, uh, Christian contemplative, Saint Teresa of Avila, says the desire for God brings peace. The other desires usually do not bring peace. They can bring excitement, but then excitement fades and uh, we are back into tension. Another important aspect of this strange desire is that it has the uh, effect of relativizing other desires. Since it brings peace, many forms of anxiety which trigger this and that desire melt, melt away. And so, in this sense, this desire relativizes other desires. I think there is this beautiful uh, Hindu religious poem from southern India, Tirukkural, where it is said something like, desire that by desiring which all the desires come to an end. So deep relativization of all the tensions, all the separations, through this fundamental desire. Now Thich Nhat Khan talks about energy. That when we become pregnant with this desire, then a new energy arises, same as in the uh, giving birth to a child. I think it's an energy of vision and an energy of purification. Like, for instance, if we are aligned with this fundamental desire, if we happen to be centered, sometimes we are, sometimes we aren't, but if we happen to be really centered, if a little flame of this desire is, is burning inside, then it is easier to be reasonable human beings. It is easier to let go. It is easier to accept. It is easier to forgive. I, I would be more specific. There is an energy, to use Thich Nhat Khan word, a power, a power to let go, a power to accept, 
a power to forgive. Now, if we are off-center, we maybe want to let go, which is already an important step, but we don't go further than that. We might want to accept, but we stop here. We, 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 we have not the power to really accept. We go up to a certain point and then we are powerless. Whereas when we are aligned, when we are centered, then we can have some of that power. We say, well, uh, let's accept, let's let go of this, or wouldn't be possible to forgive. And there is, there is a response, a healthy, a healthy response. There is a, a yes instead of a no, of a contraction. Energy, so energy of purification, energy of vision. Or we, we can take another example. We can think of what's called in this tradition impermanence in very vivid ways, like we realize that we are losing friends, that uh, we've lost dear ones, and that there is sickness and that there is death uh, all over the place. <laughs> and we realize that someone else will lose us, and so on. Now, if you are, we all know that if you are off-center, you know, sickness, death, nothing lasts, we can get confused. We can even get into despair. We can end up asking, why? Why his death? Why my death? Why death? Old age, sickening. But if we are a little bit centered, there is a different response which becomes possible and more natural. And this response is the response of compassion. We, we don't ask. It's, it's as though, a, say, a friend of ours is injured in front of us in the street. We immediately try to help. We don't ask why. So it's the same when we are a little bit aligned with this fundamental desire and we get a, like a dose, so to speak, of impermanence, then we respond basically in the only reasonable way, which is compassion. We don't know why. And it does the same to, to help. We know, everyone knows. Those questions stay questions. But we have this possibility of compassion. Not as an exotic or extra thing, but as the only possible reasonable response. And compassion, you know, the vision of everything uh, dying can be painful, but compassion is not painful. 
compassion is peaceful. Otherwise, it's not it. It's pity. And of course, pity is much better than indifference, but it's not compassion. Compassion is peaceful. It's not that we don't suffer, but we suffer and we feel the compassionate response at the same time. So we suffer in a very different way because of this possibility, which is part of ourselves with the suffering. It belongs to our equipment. It's not something which, ha which we have to invent or to create. It is there, you know, wanting to surface, badly wanting to surface. Or again, we, we, we just happen to face the level of aversion, the range of aversion, you know, from wars and crimes to all the interpersonal conflicts. And again, we can get lost in helplessness, in confusion. And again, just we might end up repeating why. We can even end up screaming why. But again, if you happen to be a little bit centered, we start responding with compassion. We start the organic, the natural response, which is there, available, although covered, frozen, whatever. Yes, there is aversion, there is violence, there is uh, it's all there has been and there will be. And we, start, we, we stop wondering. We generate compassion. And compassion is peaceful. It's not painful. It coexists with pain. Actually, it means suffering with, but with this fundamental element of peace. So the desire for enlightenment brings energy, energy of purification, energy of vision, energy of compassion. The desire for enlightenment brings energy in the form of love for the practice. Again, this too usually develops gradually, but sooner or later, we need love for the practice. Otherwise, we stop practicing. It's just simple as that. And it happens. If I think of what happens in, in Rome, in our Association for Mindfulness Meditation, in the fall, it seems like people die if they can't get into a meditation class. So we have uh, uh, waiting lists with uh, 40 people and uh, classes of 80 people. And then a few months later, 
having let all the waiting lists in, the class is 26. <laughs> but when some love for the practice starts, well, things change. And right effort is nourished. It seems to me that it's like a good relationship. In a good relationship, you need love on the one hand and effort on the other hand, discipline. Effort to be a, a full partner, a full person. Effort to be very awake to the other person's needs. This is effort. It doesn't, doesn't come by itself. But it is an immense fuel in the love part. So the two sides of the same coin are love for the practice, desire for enlightenment, on the one hand, and discipline, commitment, art of right effort, on the other hand, on the other side. I don't want to be um, too literary, but it seems to me that this is a very precious jewel. This, this combination of right effort and fundamental desire. I think that this is the major ingredient for a most crucial revolution in our life. The revolution is that things which didn't seem to have much reality in our lives start becoming much more real, like peace, for instance like mindfulness, for instance, like compassion, for instance. We must admit that in the past, although we wouldn't have thought this way at the time, but in the past we didn't believe much in peace, in compassion, in mindfulness. Maybe we were fascinated. I'm sure we were, otherwise we wouldn't be here. We, we, we were fascinated. Huh? Fascination uh, is an important start, is an important beginning. But fascination is different from seeing and feeling and touching the reality of something. How much we, would we in the past trust our possibility for peace, for compassion, for mindfulness? Probably very little. These dimensions were uh, precarious, were frail. One day were real, for the next 10 days were not real. Other things were real. Our opinions or other people's opinions, that was very real. Our preoccupations, very real, important, fat, 
in the foreground. And if sometimes was if if some time was left, then maybe we would consider mindfulness, peace, compassion. Yeah. <laughs> it's like this. So the revolution, which is amazing, although usually very gradual, very gentle, is that there is a total um, inversion. That now, those dimensions which felt so ephemeral, maybe romantic, maybe uh, uh, imaginary, and more and more real. And we are ready to abandon, to do without other things in order to stay with these new realities. We are ready to pay because we've seen more and more the value Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.